You're showing a chest x-ray of a pediatric patient, let's say a newborn, with large lucent lesion or area of the lung in the right upper lobe. What is the differential? If it's a newborn, we can think of congenital lobar overinflation or a CPAM. Otherwise, an older kid, we would think of an hematocele or even a congenital lobar overinflation, but hematocele would be sequel of trauma or infection. Again, differential for lucent large lung lesion in newborn congenital lobar, lobar overinflation or CPAM and possibly nematocele. Continuing with chest x-rays, you're shown another pediatric chest x-ray and right above the aortic arch where you're seeing a lucency along the margin of the clavicle. What they're trying to get to you to understand is anything that extends above the clavicle or at the clavicle junction is in the posterior mediastinum. So they're trying to lead you that this lucency would be a posterior mediastinal mass. Most common two things in a posterior mediastinal mass is a duplication cyst, so esophageal or tracheal duplication cyst, and paraganglioma. Term neonate describe what age spam. It's neonate between what zero day and four weeks also. Between Zero to 28 D is oldest considered a unit. Infant is anything less than one year. And finally, a pediatric range group is one to 14 years. I've seen a question asked, and the key thing they wanted to get to is knowing that unit is less than 28 days and infant is less than a year old. Imaging differences between pneumopericardium and pneumomediastinum. What we're talking about air in the mediastinal cavity can have two locations. Most commonly, it's pneumomediastinum, which is air within the mediastinum, and we see it along the mediastinal border. Now, if the air is within the pericardial cavity, which is pneumopericardium, we see air outlining the pericardial cavity, and the key imaging feature is lifting the heart above the diaphragm. So we'll see the lucencies of air elevating the heart from the diaphragm, and that's pneumopericardium. Fluoroscopic grading of pediatric urethral reflex. So the grading system is one through five. The key thing is to differentiate four and five. Let's talk about these first. So four, we have mildly tortuous ureter that is dilated, and grade five is very tortuous ureter. Uh, ureter. And that can be confusing to, figure, to point it out, but on the exam, the ureter has to be very tortuous to be a grade five reflex. Now, grade three, we have dilation of the ureter, but the key feature for grade three reflex is blunting of the calyces. And grade one is reflex half the way through the ureter, and grade two is reflex into a non-dilating collecting system. Again, to summarize them from grade one to five this time, one is reflex through the ureter, not reaching the collecting system. Grade two is reflex in a non-dilated ureter that reaches the collecting system. Grade three, we have dilation of the collecting system and blunting of the calyces. Grade four, we have dilated and mildly tortuous ureter. Obviously, we get blunting of the calyces as well. And finally, grade five is very tortuous and dilated collecting system. What is caput succedanum? The way I think of it is caput succedanum sounds like caput subcutaneous. And to me, this is a subcutaneous, or what it is, is a subcutaneous fluid collection external to the galial aponeurosis in newborn scalp. Again, the fluid is extra periosteal and it is external to the galial epineurosis 
the way I think of it, it's succedaneum sounds like subcutaneous and caput subcutaneous is a subcutaneous fluid collection. So this is the most superficial fluid collection. Sequela of malpositioning of the umbilical vein catheter. We know that the umbilical vein catheter enters the umbilicus and then goes superiorly directly. It doesn't go down, it goes up directly. And we want it to terminate at the cavoatrial junction, meaning at the inferior cavoatrial junction. The problem with it, it can dislodge and cause thrombosis of the portal vein. So if you see a catheter that goes straight up from the umbilicus but doesn't go to the heart, rather is located somewhere in the liver, then this is a malpositioned umbilical vein catheter and the complication we fear is thrombosis of the portal vein. Fibromatosis coli, this is an appearance of a mass within the sternocleidoid muscle. What it really is, it's almost like a pulled muscle and this is inflammatory changes within the sternocleidomastoid. So if we imagine that someone, or typically seen in a newborn, if we imagine that a newborn has a pulled sternocleidomastoid where there is a mass in it or shortened muscle, if you shorten the right sternocleidomastoid, which attaches between the sternum and the mastoid process of the head, you will get turning of the head toward the left side. This is how it works. A shortening of the sternocleidomastoid on the right will turn the head toward the left, and you can test it on yourself. Now, if we have a mass, the kid, not a mass, if we have this process where there is fibrosis or inflammatory changes within the muscle, kid is going to look to the opposite side of the injured muscle. On ultrasound, we will see flow, we will see uh, heterogeneous tissue, but we need to understand the location as well as the imaging appearance. There is no calcification which is important because it's just a muscle inflammatory process. Types of ECMO cannulas, we have two types typically, arteriovenous and venous venous cannula. From the name arteriovenous, the axis one is in the arterial side and the venous side, arterial side typically in the brachiocephalic artery, which is the first branch off of the aorta. And the venous side, we want it to be in the right atrium, the venous venous. We also want this to be in the right atrium. Venous, both catheters or both ends of the catheter are within the right atrium, just like a dialysis catheter. Now, arteriovenous, it supports both oxygenation of the blood and pumping of the blood. So it's used in kids who have cardiopulmonary failure. Venous venous ECMO is used for infants or kids who have pulmonary failure and their heart is functioning properly. What is Hutch diverticula? This is a diverticula adjacent to the ureterovesical junction and is associated with reflux disease. Again, Hutch diverticula is a bladder diverticula. It's located near the ureterovesical junction and is associated with pediatric reflux. Collapse versus consolidation on chest x-ray. A collapse is associated with volume loss. So we would see shifting of the cardiopulmonary structure toward the side where there's collapse consolidation. There is no volume loss and it's basically due to filling of the alveoli and bronchioli with either infection or blood or whatever. And there is no volume loss. Again, consolidation on chest x-ray. There is no volume loss. Collapse typically seen with atelectasis, there is volume loss, and this volume loss leads to shifting of the cardiopulmonary structures toward the side of the collapse. On chest CT scan, consolidation is associated with inability to distinguish blood vessels from the rest of pulmonary parenchyma. This question is not entirely pediatric, but what are the 
salient features of each type of the thyroid cancers. So we have four types. We have papillary, follicular, medullary, and anaplastic thyroid cancers. Papillary is the most common and it is associated with microcalcifications. Follicular is known to have hematogenous spread, so not necessarily lymph nodes. Medullary is associated with MIN2 and it's known not to be very responsive to I-131. And finally, anaplastic is seen in elderly patients or patients who have been exposed to radiation, either intentional or non-intentional, and it does not respond to I-131. Again, to summarize from the top, papillary is the most common associated with microcalcifications, follicular associated with hematogenous spread, medullary associated with MIN-2, and it does not respond to I-131 treatment, anaplastic seen in elderly, sequela of neck radiation, and does not respond to I-131. What is the course of umbilical vein catheter? So it enters the umbilical vein, from the umbilical vein goes to the left portal vein, from the left portal vein it goes through ductus venosus into the hepatic vein, then into the IVC, and finally at the cavoatrial junction. Again, umbilical vein, left portal vein, ductus venosus, hepatic vein, and IVC. The way I remember that it's the left portal vein, not the right, is recanalization of the umbilical vein in cirrhotic liver goes through the left portal vein. Now it goes to ductus venosus because it's bypassing the hepatic circuit into the hepatic vein followed by the IVC, the course should be along the right side of the spine as the course of the IVC also would be on the right side of the spine. Now, if there is dislodgement of the umbilical vein where it typically dislodges, we said it comes from the left portal vein, so unless it's retracted, it would be in the right portal vein. Most common location for bronchopulmonary sequestration, it is the left lower thorax. Again, pulmonary sequestration, the key hallmark of its feature is it gets its arterial supply from systemic circuit, not from the pulmonary artery. On imaging, if they want to show you, they can show you a branch of a feeding vessel coming off of the aorta into the left lower lobe, and they want to get you to say this is bronchopulmonary sequestration. Again, let's remember most common location is the left lower thorax. We said the most common location for pulmonary sequestration is left lower thorax. Now the most common location for bronchial atresia is the left upper lobe. Again, bronchial atresia, most common location is the left upper lobe. Significance of choroid plexus cyst. These are typically present in normal fetuses and would resolve on follow-up scan. Now, there is an association between choroid plexus cyst and trisomy 18. So, if they were to hint on what thing we would be worried about, it would be trisomy 18 and genetic testing. Again, choroid plexus cyst, normal to see them, and they would resolve in follow-up scan, but there is association between choroid plexus cyst and trisomy 18. If you remember from yesterday or two days ago, we talked about trisomy 18, and we said this is Edwards syndrome, and we said this is associated with clenched fist and microganthia, or short or small mandible. Why is pediatric nuclear bone scan for osteomyelitis can be negative? It can be negative because the edema would decrease profusion of radiotracer into that joint, and we will see a photopenic defect. That doesn't mean it's negative, rather indicates that there is so much edema there due to inflammation. Radiographic features of lead poisoning, we see sclerotic metaphyseal band involving the distal femur, proximal tibia, and distal tibia and fibula. So it involves both tibia fibula, 
and femur on the metaphysis. It's important to note that it, it does involve the fibula as well because there is a normal variant where it only involves the tibia. Lead poisoning is associated with sclerotic metaphyseal band involving the femur, tibia, and proximal fibula. And this is important to distinguish it from a normal variant of metaphyseal sclerotic band, which only involves the tibia. Mnemonic for pediatric elbow fracture occurrence. So my mnemonic is SU like me. SU is supracondylar fracture. That's the most common. Like is lateral condyle and me is medial epicondyle. Again, most common elbow fracture, the mnemonic I use is SU like me. SU is for supracondylar fracture. Like is lateral condyle and me is medial epicondyle. What is Coker's criteria? This is a criteria of labs and presentation that allows us to differentiate septic arthritis from benign causes, including transient synovitis. It's four criteria. You need to have three out of four to be worried for septic hip. And these are non-weight bearing, so inability to walk, temperature, so fever greater than 38.5 degrees, elevated ESR, ESR, so greater than 40, or elevated CRP, and finally, white blood count greater than 12. Again, you need three out of four. They include inability to walk or bear weight on that joint, fever, elevated ESR or CRP, and white blood count greater than 12. When three out of those four criteria are met, the chance of septic arthritis is approximately 93%. When two out of four are met, the chance of septic arthritis is approximately 40%. The way I think of it is two, four is 50. And when two is met, then there is the chance of septic arthritis is 50%. Comparison of slipped capital femoral epiphysis versus leg calf parties disease. Now, these are diseases that happen in kids and on exams, they want us to distinguish between both, even though they're totally different processes. Now for skiffy or slipped capital femoral epiphysis. The way it sounds, slipped, meaning it's displaced. And the way I think of it, it's slipped because there is too much weight. So there is obesity in kids and the epiphysis slip. So it's a Salter-Harris type one fracture of the proximal femur physis. When it's open, it's seen in young teenagers. Those are slightly overweight and they're trying to get active and that's when it starts to slip. Now, key feature that it's common to be bilateral. So if it's fixed in one position, we need to fix the other side. And the best view for Skiffy is frog leg view. Again, Skiffy, Salter-Harris type 1 fracture seen in obese kids, typically early teenagers, bilateral. And for imaging evaluation, we need to get the frog leg view. And on imaging, we're looking for the Klein line. For leg calf parties disease, this is avascular necrosis of the proximal femoral epiphysis. So one involves the physis, the other one involves the epiphysis. You don't have to be obese to get avascular necrosis. We already know that. Age is different. Typically, five years old is the average age of the patient, maybe six years old. Does not have to be bilateral or it's less bilateral than skiffy. And finally, what we see on x-ray, we see subchondral lucency and finding associated with a vascular necrosis of the femur. So collapse would be a severe form of a vascular necrosis in the femoral head. Again, 
like calf parthies, is a vascular necrosis of the femur epiphysis seen in kids five years old. They don't have to be obese, and we see findings associated with, subcon uh, with a vascular necrosis, including subchondral lucencies and collapse of the femoral head in later stages. Skiffy, Salter Harris type 1, seen in obese kids, teenagers who barely started, you know, starting to get active, and the best imaging is the frog view for evaluation. Sorry, I lied. One last question. This question regarding congenital hip dysplasia or hip dysplasia, what is the alpha angle? Alpha angle is the angle of how deep is the acetabulum socket. Typically, the alpha angle, we want it to be greater than 60 degrees. The bigger the angle, the deeper the socket, which means it will hold the femoral head in place. Shallower angle would mean a shallower socket and increases chance for developmental hip dysplasia. The alpha angle is on x-ray, is ultrasound measurement. On x-ray, we have the acetabular angle, which is the complementary angle to the alpha angle, meaning if we add alpha angle and the acetabular angle, we'll get a 90 degree.